Well, you saw that we had two scripture verses, so that means the sermon's double the length. Is that? No? Okay. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Pastor Brian Bethke. I'm the North Andover Campus Pastor, and it's my pleasure this morning to bring to you God's Word. And um, I've had the opportunity to go on a lot of, of mission trips um, to Africa, to Afghanistan. I also was an outreach director for a while um, in a church planner and pastor for the La Jolla Indian Reservation. And I don't say that so that um, I'm trying to like give you credibility in what I'm saying. I say that because I, I was believing a lie about missions. And that lie was kind of in the form of this. Um, if I wasn't actively going somewhere in either the Indian Reservation or an outreach or a mission trip, then I was not useful to God. And that's just not, not true. That's not the case. The truth is, as Christians, we are called to live a life on mission until we stand in the presence of Christ. And there's a spectrum of mission that we're called to be involved in. And we're called to live a missionary life of action, each and every one of us. The title of today's message is called, Let Us Then Go. And if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and also put a finger in Revelation 7. And today what I want to do is I want to look at three aspects of missions that will help us define what life on mission looks like for each and every one of us. So let me go ahead and ask God to just bless our time this morning. Oh, Father, we come to you on this Mission Sunday, and we just thank you that we could gather here in your name freely. I pray that your spirit would just fill us. I pray that you would, you would just illuminate your scripture to us and teach us the things that we do not know. So we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see is that missions is imitation. Hebrews 13, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Here's the context. The writer of Hebrews is trying to um, show us that in the old covenant sacrificial system, the animals would be used to atone for our sin, but the carcasses were carried outside of the city because if they were to be burned within the city, it was considered uh, ceremonially impure. So going outside the city gate was considered ceremonially impure. Yet he's saying that this old covenant practice was pointing to an ultimate sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, went outside the gate. Who went outside the gate where it was impure in order to purify us through his blood. And he is our Lord, he is our Savior, and we are compelled to follow him make him known. And so we see verse 13, we're given a command. Let us then go. Let us depart. Let us move out to him outside the camp. And this is a command that is called for us to separate ourselves from the service of Christ. It is an exhortation to leave our safety and our security of our insulated communities, our, our camps, for the purposes of Christ. And in the context, you have these people that come to know Jesus, and they're, they're Jewish Christians. And moving outside of their camp, moving outside of their cultural context to reach people for the gospel of Christ was abandoning everything. And that's the call. We've been called to abandon everything. 
And this command necessitates a response, a response that is performance-based, not philosophically-based. You know, oftentimes we sit and, and we ponder and we say, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. We should really do something about it. And what we do, what we call is, what I like to call, we appreciate the problem. But we really don't do anything about it. And this is a command. This is a command that says, don't appreciate the problem, do it. It's calling us to imitate Christ on mission by going outside the camp, by going outside of our insulated community, by going outside and doing something for him. So what does it look like to go outside the camp? What does it look like? Well, it can mean a lot of things. It could be geographical. It could mean going to Africa. It could mean going to Afghanistan. It could mean going to Boston. It could mean going to the cubicle right next to yours. It could mean going across the couch. It could be socioeconomical. Someone outside of your socioeconomical sphere. It could be educational. It could be long-term missions. It could be short-term missions. It could be outreach. It could be service. It could be everyday missions in the context that God has called each and every one of us to. Going outside the camp is confronting our cultural moment, crossing these cultural boundaries and engaging the different other, the people that are different than us, and getting outside of our insulated camps, getting outside of our comfort zones. And we do this in humility, boldness, and undergirded in the truth of Jesus Christ. And we have a legacy of this, not just as Christians, but as people here at Free Christian Church. Jesus addressed his contemporary, his cultural moment by saving the world. Paul picked that up and continued his missionary journey by bridging the gap cross-culturally and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. The founding members of this church addressed their cultural moment by standing firm as it pertains to the tyranny of slavery for the purposes of making Christ known. And now that has been handed off to us. It's been handed off to us. And we're called to pick that up and address our cultural moments. It's something that we can't just talk about. It's something we must do, that we're called to do, that we're commanded to do. Every generation is given these, these opportunities to pronounce the gospel anew by addressing the cultural moment. And we have the same thing. We've been given that same task. So what can we expect if we go, out, go to him outside the camp? What can we expect? Well, we can expect persecution. We see bearing the disgrace he bore, enduring unpleasant and difficulties for Christ. You see, when light invades darkness, you could expect a counterattack from the, dark, the darkness. It's going to happen. We have to expect it. Something's going to happen. And Christ bore his cross, and we are called to follow him with our cross. Now, some of you are going, that's a bummer. You just bring up persecution. But here's the thing. This is where things get real, right? This is where the idea of being on mission for Christ gets real, because our safety and security are being questioned. They're, they're in question. They're, 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 we're being asked to abandon that. And so things get real, real fast. So is there something wrong with wanting a desire to be safe and secure? No, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe and secure. The problem isn't safety and security. The problem is in whom our safety and security is in. 
We are heirs of an everlasting kingdom with the king of kings. Verse 14 says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Our hope and assurance is in Christ and his kingdom. We're not here to build our kingdom. We're here to build Christ's kingdom. And that's what our hope is in. And this gives us boldness to endure anything outside the camp. And over the years, I've taken some some heat on this as it regards to safety and security and abandonment. My wife, Erica, is currently on a, on a mission trip to Mexico. She's with an organization called Global Recordings Network, and they go to um, Culiacan, Mexico, which is in the Sinaloa area, heavy drug cartel area, and they go to these tomato and pepper um, harvesting camps, and they do language diagnosis. They go and they figure out um, what language these, these different migrant farm workers speak, and there's five to 600 different languages and dialects, and then they, they have these audio tracks and they present to them the, the gospel stories and that. And she's been there for a month, but she does this every year. And when she first started to do it, um, people, well-meaning people, people that loved us, would take me aside and they would say, Brian, how can you let her do that? How can you let her do that? And, and I was like, yeah, how can I let her do that? It's so dangerous. I'm like, yeah, it's so dangerous. But then I started to pray and think, and, and, and first of all, um, I don't let my wife do anything. My wife has been equipped to do things, and I don't mean that in like a tongue-in-cheek way. I mean, she's been equipped to do things I can't do. My job is to just come alongside her and discern the call that God has put on her life, and then pray for her and encourage her in that. Here's the thing. If somebody senses the God's call to to go outside the camp where it is dangerous, you better not stand in, in their way. Do not stand between them and God. It's not a good place to be. Amen. So you go and you encourage that person. You help discern that call. Is this an accurate call? We could also expect transformation. So we could expect persecution, but we could expect transformation. Whenever light invades darkness, transformation happens. The gospel is transformational. Christ is a transformational savior. This is my, my wife, Erica. She, she um, puts out these Facebook posts. It's kind of like a, uh, her journaling through her times. And so I just want to share with you something she, uh, she, she journaled on, on Tuesday. Week three, day two, Campo Santa Fe. The title is Transformation. Somehow each year when I visit Culiacan, regardless of the team that I'm on, I end up in Campo Santa Fe. The first year I visited, what stood out most was a man named Santos. I did not meet him personally in 2016, but rather saw him walking through the camp wearing makeup and dressed in women's clothing. He looked frightened and nervous as he walked quickly by a long row of rooms where I was working with my partner. I made eye contact with him briefly, and then he was gone. Overall, there was this dark and oppressive presence in the camp that I couldn't quite describe. The next year, in 2017, I had the opportunity to meet Santos personally when our diagnostics team knocked on his door to invite him to a movie. My friend shared the gospel with him, and it broke my heart when he asked if God would love and accept, as he said, a person like him. We told him that all we need to do is to come to the Lord with a repentant heart, 
and that it is God who changes the things in our lives that need to change, whether that thing is the challenge Santos faced or any number of things that have a hold on our lives. At this, Santos gave his life to Christ. This was a huge encouragement, as many other, others living in the camp told us of an evil spirit that had a power over the camp. The dark presence hadn't been a figment of my imagination, as many people in the camp had a name for it. One man even said that he desired to surrender his life to follow Jesus, but was, an eight, was unable out of fear of being harmed by the Spirit. I left last year feeling grateful to have witnessed the transformation of Santos, but, but Santos' life, but praying all year for Campo Santa Fe to be released from whatever dark and oppressive force that was present. Last night I arrived at Campo Santa Fe feeling hopeful. I went down along the shadowy paths between the gallerias, wondering who or what we might encounter. No one person stands out among the multitude of people, but rather how much different this camp felt spiritually. There were a few less than desirable things going on in the camp, but that oppressive, heavy presence was gone. Where there once had been profound darkness, I saw, I saw glimmers of light and hope breaking through. As I continued to serve in Kuliakon each year, I continue to be amazed and humbled the things that God allows me to witness. Where the gospel enters, where Christ enters, his light is present and darkness is gone. Wherever, transformation happens. So I have to ask you, what does it mean for you to go outside the camp? What does it mean for you to go outside the camp? Is that something overseas or is that something in the next barber chair. Secondly, missions is proclamation. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly professes his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We are called to proclaim the good news of Christ in mission through continual, uninterrupted acts of worship. And this implies a lifestyle on mission that sees every opportunity that we enter into as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And here we're given two ways that we proclaim Christ. The first is the fruit of lips that openly professes his name. This is an open, public, overt proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a bold, unapologetic presentation that makes it clear that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel. The gospel that says, there's something wrong. I feel the separation. I, I, I don't know what it is. But we name it. It's sin. Sin has separated us from God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we deserve judgment. But God didn't leave us there. He sent his only son to live a perfect and righteous life. And then he went outside the camp. And he was crucified, and he was buried. But then he was resurrected. And we put our faith and trust in him. We, too, are resurrected to new life. New life that will be in his presence forever. And that's not it. There's a restoration that is going on in the world. And we're called to participate in that restoration. The expansion of that kingdom. Light expanding throughout the darkness. And we're called to profess that. Proclaim that. Openly. Overtly. But what does that look like? What does that delivery look like for us? 
Because here's the thing, and, and, and I'm just going to be transparent here, and, I, and please forgive me if this is you, but I don't like salespeople. <laughs> if you come to 11 Nottingham Lane, you're not, it's not going to be a good day for you, all right? It depends on your context of where you're at and how you proclaim the gospel. My wife just happens to be in a location where they could go and they could talk through some things and, and, and then proclaim the gospel. Sometimes it's just having a relationship with somebody. And then they ask you to, they invite you to speak truth into their lives. And so you tell them and you proclaim the gospel. They're asking you, tell them. And sometimes it's overt going out there with tracks and actually talking with people. It's whatever your context in is and whatever God has called you to. But nonetheless, we're called to overtly proclaim the gospel. That's the first thing. Secondly, and, and do not forget to do good and share with others. We are called to do good deeds and to share with others. Now, this word share is the word koinonia. Maybe we've heard this word before. It means fellowship. It's the act of sharing activities and privileges with the different other, with someone who is different than you. It implies this intimate relationship. It's partnership. Missions isn't just throwing money at a problem and walking away. It's relational. It's uncomfortable because you're going outside the camp and you're engaging somebody that isn't like you. In 2013, I, I went to Africa. I was teaching... Um, pastoral leadership. And my, my interpreter was a guy named Jackson. Jackson was from the Maasai tribe. And Jackson was like six foot seven. People from the Maasai tribe are very tall. And he towers over me. And it was uncomfortable because I would ask him questions that weren't really appropriate in African culture. And he'd ask me questions that weren't really appropriate in our culture. And we worked through those things. And there was this affection that started to um, take place. We just really enjoyed each other's company. And so we were on a break one day, and it was just this little village. The, where we taught was basically a metal room, and it was this, this village called Bengoma in, in, uh, in Kenya, on the Kenyan and Ugandan border. So as we're talking, this is day number four, and we're just totally just enjoying each other's company. He goes, you know, Brian, I really like you. I really like you too, Jackson. He goes, oh, we got to go back inside. And then he goes and he grabs my hand, and he wants to hold hands with me. Everything in my body was screaming. <laughs> I'm screaming. I'm like, oh no, what's going on here? This does not feel comfortable. And it was just, in his, in his culture, that's a, that's a sign of deep friendship. But in our culture, that's just, I, you don't do that. <laughs> right? And plus, I had some street cred. I'm a Marine, I, you know. It's uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable to engage the different other. But missions is relational. It's not just dropping a spiritual grenade or some money and walking away. The proclamation merges in three practical things that we've been called to do to live a life on mission. The first thing is pray. We're called to pray for God to lead us where he would lead us, to go outside the camp, the people that we've been called to, to engage with. We've also been called to pray for our missionaries. You know, everyone was given one of these when they walked in. 
I encourage you to spend some time during your devotion just praying for our missionary partners. They need your prayer. We're also called to send people. We're called to mobilize people. We're called to encourage people. If people sense, uh, get this sense of calling, you need to encourage them in that calling. If someone says, you know, I really think I need to go to Lawrence and, and, and meet the homeless out in Lawrence, encourage, just help them discern that, but encourage and mobilize them for that. That's a good thing. We're also called to go. Each and every one of us are called to go. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter who you are. You're called to go. If you are in Christ, you are called to go. So those three things. Finally, missions is exaltation. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 7. Verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the Lord, the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We must remember the goal of missions. The goal of missions is not saving people. The goal of missions is worship. The goal of missions is worship. One author has put it this way. Missions exist because worship doesn't. This is a glimpse at the throne room at the end of time where we will be gathered worshiping the Lord. We are put here to worship God, to usher in other worshipers of God. And sometimes that goal gains ground by God, by God sovereignly uh, saving people through our efforts, which utterly blows my mind how he uses weak instruments like us for his glory. And sometimes our efforts kind of feel we could be discouraged by that because maybe we're not seeing the numbers or the growth we'd like to see in people. But I want to encourage you, every time we are obedient by going outside the gate and living a life on mission, the goal advances because we are worshiping him in truth and spirit. Every time. Our efforts never return void. In God's economy, no effort, no missional effort ever goes to waste. It doesn't exist in his economy. The goal is worship. And if that seems boring to you, if you're saying, well, I don't, at the end of the age, we're just going to worship Jesus, you don't know Jesus that well. That's going to be, an, it's going to be so awesome. And I mean, in the very term, not the California awesome, I mean, awesome. <laughs> A life on mission really connects us, us here in Andover. Let me just blow your mind for a second. Like, just think about this. Here we sit in New England, in Andover, not a, not a big town by any measure of the means, yet we are connected with God's global plan for mission. We are a part of God's global plan for mission. We have a real kingdom impact right here. 
It's all right if you say amen. If you wanted to, I would be totally for it. Thank you. We have a global impact of Christ here? That is unbelievable. And one day, we're going to stand around the throne of Christ with people from every tribe, every nation, every language. It'll be a kaleidoscope of people clothed in our robes of victory, praising and worshiping our king. And in those days, there's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more mission because we'll all be worshiping Christ. But until that day, we've been called to live a life on mission. So we've been called to go outside. Amen? Amen.